Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chickarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 89. Today's guest is Paul Lazell. Paul Lazell is a real estate investor and educator. Since 2001, Paul has purchased property in 44 of the 50 states. He is the founder of the REO Auction Academy, where he has taught hundreds of investors how to buy real estate from online auctions, bank REOs, and off the MLS system. Paul and I discuss the art of the real estate deal, how to find a great property to invest in, and common traps that novice real estate investors fall into. Paul and I also discuss cryptocurrencies and the world of NFTs. It is an interesting conversation with an investor at the top of his real estate game. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Paul Lazell, real estate investor and entrepreneur. And remember, life is built, not born. Paul Lazell, welcome to the show. Joe, thanks for having me, man. It's awesome to have you, Paul. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Oh, that's a good question. So who am I? I am a real estate investor, an entrepreneur first and foremost, right? But full-time real estate investor. I buy and sell properties all over the US. Some I renovate. Some I just sell as is, some I keep as rentals. Been doing that since 2001. About, I think it was December of 2001 when I bought my first property, did the first rehab. So that's the real estate side. So I've been doing that for what, 21 years, going on 22 years here. So pretty good experience with that. And I got into the crypto game in 2017. And that was about May or June when I first started buying Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and some others in, in 2017. Good time to get in. And then the market exploded, as you probably remember, back in late December of 2017, and then it tanked in 2018. So that, that crypto journey has been, all right, now I'm a hodler. Hodler meaning hold on for dear life, H-O-D-L, hold on for dear life. Hodler, that's where the term, and by the way, if people want to get hear an interesting story, go on YouTube, type in HODL, the guy who created HODL. There's a great interview with him. It's like an hour long and how he created the term HODL. It turns out he was drinking bourbon. He was totally drunk, trying to trade, and he screwed up the trade. He goes, oh, I guess I have to HODL. He meant hold. (laughs) But anyway, it's a great episode. You just want to listen to that one, give a little bit of background there. But um, like the same thing happened to me. All right, now that it crashed, I'm just going to hold on because my vision on cryptos, as it still is today, is long-term. So when I'm buying these, I'm thinking five to seven years down the road. Now, knowing that a lot of cryptos, and let's just say about 80% of the cryptos that are out there right now will probably be gone in the next three to five years. So now it's just being in the right ones and it's just researching which are the best protocols out there, which ones have the best use cases out there. Because we're, we're kind of are in a crypto space where we were, Joe, back in the dot-com era, right? The late 90s. All right, who's going to be there to stay? Is it going to be the Amazons, the Googles, right? They were the ones there to stay. The Apples, who were the ones that failed, like MySpace and these other different ones out there. A bunch of them went belly up. vast majority, probably over 80% went belly up. And then the good ones are there and still thriving today. So that's kind of my journey and like those two different things. If you want to ask more specific questions, I could probably go in the long rabbit holes for you. I want to get into real estate. You do it like no one I've ever seen, how you utilize systems and processes, how you so simplify the buying process for online, doing some research. You bought houses in 44 of the 50 states over the last 20 years, what you're doing with crypto. I know people that have bought houses and flipped them and made some money. I know people that have done it four or five times. I don't know anyone who's done it for 20 years and the hundreds and hundreds of you've done and you buy things in other states then you don't see it and you just sell it and you make money. I just don't understand it. So I just would love to have you. That's why I wanted to have you on just to figure out like what you do and how you do it. But before we get there, I just want to start back all the way from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? 
So born and raised in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. I just turned 49. <laughs> Next year's a big one. I went to North Penn. And let me give you a little deeper, because Joe, I don't even know if I've ever talked to you about this, right? I was a high school dropout. I dropped out after my sophomore year of high school. Wow. I hated school. What happened, what led me to do it, I got a D, became academically ineligible to play baseball in the spring year. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Finished that year, got my GED, went to Monco that summer, played baseball for Monco, transferred from Monco to East Stroudsburg. Then walked on, played baseball and football there, then transferred to Drexel. So I went from East Stroudsburg, which was D2 baseball and football, to um, Drexel, which of course had no football program, went defunct in 1972. But their baseball program was D1. And back then in the 90s, this was 1994, there was a JUCO rule, 95, 94, 95. There's a JUCO rule in there, which unfortunately negatively affected way more people than it was meant. It was meant to stop people who struggled in high school, who would go to a community college or junior college, get great grades, and then transfer to Villanova or Duke or one of those things, right? That's what it was meant to stop. The problem is they found out it was hurting people like myself and one other guy who was trying to make Drexel's baseball team too, who's also a D2 player. So the rule is you can't go from D2 to D1 in that next year. You have to sit out another year. So that was one role they had. And then the second thing that hurt me was you couldn't earn any income. You couldn't be, you couldn't work part-time even, couldn't earn any W-2 or 1099 income. Like, all right, this takes me out of being able to play any more collegiate sports because I needed to work to pay for my college education. Education. So that totally threw everything off. Did graduate college. So I dropped out of high school, but I did graduate college with over a 3.0, which I'm happy about. <laughs> you remind me a lot of Gary Vaynerchuk, where like the entrepreneurs are sometimes the worst students in school. Like that structured totally. learning is so bad, right? The entrepreneurs usually make really bad students and they make horrible employees. Yeah. Like you're almost unemployable because it's just, you do your own thing. Unemployable. I have shirt that says that. Really? If you see something from a big company that doesn't make sense for the message, like I'm not doing that and you just move on and do your own thing. Why do right. you think entrepreneurs are usually bad students and why are they so hard to employ? Great, great question. And good. there's definitely answers to it. So most of us that are entrepreneurs have ADD, attention deficit disorder, right? Shiny object comes, new shiny object comes, you're trying to go and figure out which one you like, right? When you're running your business, oh, this, oh, I can employ this in my business. I can do that. You're visionary. You're looking at things from a future perspective, right? Whereas school teaches you to be an employee. It teaches you to fit in this box and live by this. After this, you do that. And it's almost an assembly line of what school teaches. First of all, these classes need to be quicker. They, they also need to make you ask questions, right? That's how teaching should be. It should be saying stuff that you're now asking questions because that's how we're learning, right? Well, the school doesn't do it. It teaches you to learn for a test. Study this, memorize this, and go there. That doesn't teach you to learn. Matter of fact, I'm sure you know, you don't learn anything about finance at all in school. I had to take a business class in 10th grade to learn how to balance a checkbook, right? It was one class. It was elective. Most people don't take that. They don't teach anything about amortization, Interest, compounded interest, simple interest, you'll learn any of these things. So the school system is not made to teach people to be entrepreneurs. It's made to teach people to be good employees. Entrepreneurs mostly struggle. So in these mastermind groups I belong to, all of us were crappy students. You're not going to find anybody who's a valedictorian ever because they they think differently. Now, a lot of those guys could be CEOs of companies because they're really bright and they understand stuff, but they're not necessarily the visionaries. Visionaries are entrepreneurs, people who just think a little bit different. Simple as that. Are you familiar with Seth Godin? Yes. yes. Yeah. And yes. Seth has a book on how broken the school system is and like how school was set up for factory workers. Even the modern day yes. version, the origins of the school system, even college are for factory workers. Like they, they want to produce yeah. compliant factory workers to follow the rules, stay in line and don't go out of line. You got so much going on with your businesses. I'd love to dive into crypto and real estate. Let's go real estate. What first got you involved in real estate? So I'll go back to 1996 when I was working for my uncle while I was still in college, right? I was doing this in the summers. He had bought a duplex and then a quadruplex. And what we were renovating these things, completely gutting them. They were, it was um, plaster and lathe. And anybody who's ever worked with plaster and lathe knows what a mess it is. We're ripping the ceilings down. All this stuff's coming down your eyes and your coffin. You have to wear a mask, respirator. 
It's, it's unbelievable. So we did that, totally renovated everything, put all new plumbing, all new electric, all new drywall, new windows, new siding, new roof. And his intent was to just buy and hold. My uncle's a hodler. He just buys and holds real estate. There's only one property he's ever bought and resold. And he did that jointly with me. We did a fix and flip together. So that got me interested in real estate back in the 90s when I was in college. Then in 2001, when I was working for the banks, I was working for a small community bank and worked there as an underwriter for a year and then as a business development officer for another year and a half, two years. And then I went to Citizens Bank and was a BDO there, business development officer there. While I was doing real estate part-time, this is in 2001. And my whole objective was leading up to 2004 was to have 18 months worth of income that I knew I could pay my bills for 18 months and then I go full-time. And that's when I went full-time doing real estate in 2004. So yeah, the real estate journey, that's how it started. And I was basically a fix and flipper at that point. My first property I ever did was in Norristown, picked it up for $29.5. I, I did a partner with a guy on this one. We put about $3,000 in it. We did the work ourselves, sold it for $69,000 a couple of months later. Then I bought one in Ambler, picked it up at Orange Avenue in Ambler, Picked it up for sixty thousand. Turned around, sold it for I think it was buck thirty five. Then did another one at Hapro, and I just started going further and further out. Then the financial crisis hit in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. So that shifted my model. My model was fix and flipped. I'm selling properties. I'm losing money. I'm like, all right, I got to change this. I wholesaled a couple of property, a couple of properties in the past. And what wholesaling is for people who don't know, you get a property under contract, say for a hundred thousand dollars. You then turn around and sell that property to another end buyer for maybe 110, 115 or, or more if you can. And it's called an assignment of contract. You're getting that property under contract, assigning it to an end buyer, and then you're collecting that difference. Whether you do it on the HUD or off the HUD, that's a choice. But a lot of the properties I was buying, I couldn't do that. So I buy a lot of bank-owned properties and properties on online auctions, which we'll get into here in a bit. Let's hit pause real quick. So wholesaling, right? Yeah. So you bought a house, say, for 100000 Why would someone buy it for you at one fifteen if you didn't fix it up and you just wanted to sell it again? How does that extra fifteen grand come into value knowing that you just bought it and that was the market value? How does that happen? So basically, you're getting a more or less distressed property, a property that needs work that your average Joe is going to buy, right? Not to use your name and out there, but your average <laughs> Joe is going to buy a property that needs a lot of work, right? They, they don't want it. They want it to be turnkey or need minimal stuff. So we're getting stuff that's distressed, knowing that we could probably sell it to another investor who's going to fix it and flip it or keep it as a rental. And that's how you create that arbitrage. You're looking for something you create arbitrage with. So you pick it up for 80, maybe sell it to somebody for 100, and they're going to put 30 into it and sell for 180, or they're going to just refinance it and keep it as a long-term rental. Mm -hmm. So that's basically you're finding something, whether you are doing direct mail and mailing out to homeowners, or whether you have relationships with realtors, which was more my case. I did direct mail for a little while, stopped it in 2013, but I had relationships with realtors who would bring me what they call pocket listings which is a listing they have that they know they don't want to put on the MLS necessarily because you're going to get a whole bunch of foot traffic, but you're not going to get serious buyers, right? Because you're going to have mostly just regular people going through. They would call their list of investors, somebody like me, come in, like you interested in this? I'm like, yeah, totally interested in this one. Get under contract. They get their commission. The seller's happy because they're selling the property quick, usually to a cash buyer. And then I'm assigning it to somebody else. Or sometimes I'll double close on them, meaning I'll buy it and then resell it the same day. So I'll purchase it for $80,000 at 9 a.m. and sell it to my end buyer at 10 a.m. for 100,000. So back-to-back yeah. -back closings. And then how do you find a buyer that fast? So you buy something in the morning at 80 grand. How do you have a buyer a few hours later for 100? Like how do they look at that deal, know it, assess it, and, and want to buy that quick? How's that work? Usually that's building relationships, like whether you belong to DIG, which is a real estate investment group in the Philadelphia area, and know what people like. So then you could have a list of 20, 30 guys that buy in that area. And then you just email them, text them, say, hey, I got a deal. Are you interested? Here's the price point. They'll start doing some desktop stuff, looking at numbers, and then want to go see, of course, visit the property too. So that's one way. You can also buy postcards, which are cash buyers list. And then mail out to those people. What we did back in the day, we still do it today, is we'll advertise on Craigslist, cheap home for sale, fixer upper, things that are going to catch investors' eyes, right? Investors are going to 
want to see this property and uh, okay, there's a deal, there's some equity in there for me. So those are the best ways to do it. Facebook Marketplace has become a very, very good place, but not in every market. So we found when we sell a lot of these properties, Facebook Marketplace might work. In, it works great in Texas, believe it or not. It works great in other markets, but in the markets like in North and South Carolina, where it's more the mountains or less people or older population, they're less likely to be on Facebook Marketplace, right? You're going to generally want a younger crowd on Facebook Marketplace mm-hmm. buying there. So your older people, a lot of times we will advertise or in an area where it doesn't have great Wi-Fi. Or sell reception, it will advertise the newspapers and sell them that way too. So there's a million different ways to skin a cat, believe it or not. Wow. So the, a lot of it depends on where we are in a country as to which is our number one, two, or three method of disposition of a property. Let's rewind a little bit here. You flipped the house, made some money, flipped the house, made some money. At what point do you say, not only do I want to keep doing this to making money, but I want this to be my career path? I think this is a business. I could mm-hmm. see me going all in on this. At what point does that happen? For me, it happened in the end, uh, early in 2002, after I sold that property, I think we sold it February, March in 2002. And I saw, we just made 30 grand on something we spent week fixing up and picked it up for 29.5 and sold it for 69,000. We netted 30 grand. We split 15. I'm like, I can repeat this and do this over and over and over again. I did have an advantage over people in the fact that I knew contracting, right? I've been doing contract work since I was 16 years old, working for my uncle through junior high, high school, and of course through college. So I did have that advantage where I could do stuff that a lot of other investors can't or knew what the cost would be to do it. So I had a slight advantage that way, So which gave me even more of an interest in doing this. I'm like, look, I can use my skills. I never have to work for a customer. I could just use my skills to fix up properties and then resell them. So that 2002 was really the point where that happened. How do you evolve from that to literally now you're going online, like these online auctions, buying houses maybe 10 states away that you'll never see and maybe not hold for more than 24, 48 hours? Like how does buying and flipping morph into that? Which I, that just looks like the whole next level stuff. How's that happen? Totally was. And it's a and it's a comfort level thing. So as I started buying in, in, in PA, I would expand out into New Jersey. I started to go to Pittsburgh. And then we started to go to Ohio and then Indiana and then down to the Carolinas. And what I started to realize was before I got to the Carolinas, the stuff when I was just doing Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Ohio was I could do this in any market. I could do it in any market in the country. I don't need to limit myself to just looking in my backyard here in Montgomery County or Bucks County, Philadelphia area. I can start looking everywhere. And now the whole country is my breadbasket to look at. So whereas most investors want to see the property, feel it, touch it, you don't have to do that, especially now. Even in 2008, nine, when I first got into what they call virtual investing, virtual wholesaling, virtual fix and flipping, the technology wasn't as good as it is now. It just keeps getting easier and easier and better today. I mean, I could send my contractor with my iPhone here to go take good high resolution video of what the repairs he's done there. So I know exactly what's done, what still needs to be done. So the details and that kind of get a lot easier. I'd say the biggest thing to help us going more out of state and have a comfort level was we started to develop a lot of good relationships with REO agents. REO agents are just basically bank-owned properties. It's for real estate owned by the bank is what REO stands for. So we started to make great relationships with these people. And I would tell them, hey, look, I'm looking to buy in this property. It looks like we're picking up for 60000 What do you think the value of this property is as is? And what do you think the value is of it fixed up? And they would give us a number. And I'll tell you what, their as-is value was incredibly accurate. They got so good, especially these these agents that were experienced 10, 15, 20 years doing this. So we started to really rely on people in different markets. And then we got really good. Zillow got way better with being able to comp properties. Now we use Zillow as our number one source to comp properties if we don't have MLS data in that area. And MLS data is multiple listing service. Mm -hmm. Think of your local realtor who could pull all that stuff up, right? So uh, Zillow may not be quite as up to date, but it gives you great information. What you could do is you can be buying a property in Topeka, Kansas, a three bedroom, two bathroom, 1,250 square foot rancher, right? And what you can do in, in a certain zip code, you can do it to a certain zip code, or you could just make sure you're looking at comps that are three bedrooms, two bathrooms. You can do a range of 1,000 to 1,500 square feet, whether it has a garage or not. You can change the acreage of the land. 
to really pull up good, accurate comps. So it just makes that so much easier. And then the next thing you got to rely on is what kind of repairs does it need? Because the agent will tell you it may need this, that, or the power's not on, so they don't know if this works or that. You know, might need a hot water heater, might need no HVAC system. The roof appears to be good, but we don't know. So what we did is we started factoring in pricing. We would come up with $15 a square foot for renovations. And if it needed more, let's say it looked like it needed a roof, we would add seven to 10000 depending on how big the roof was. If we were unsure of the HVAC, we might add five to 7000 for HVAC. And then you do your, at the end, you do your little bit of miscellaneous, and then you come up with repairs. So let's, to make math simple, let's say I'm picking up a property for $30,000. It needs $25,000 in repairs. Let's start from beginning then. $100,000 is the max after repair value, the ARV. $100,000 is that. We're picking it up for twenty-five. dollars call it. We're going to put another thirty into it, which puts us at fifty-five thousand dollars, right? And we're going to sell it. We got selling costs, you know, five six percent uh, for an agent to list it and, and resell it for us, plus our holding cost, utility costs, maintenance, property maintenance, whether it's mowing the yard, shoveling snow, depending on where it is, and then the interest, right? That you're holding it. You got to get all those holding costs add up, and then that's your profit at the end. So to make things easier for our students, what we do is you take that RV multiply it by 75% or 70%, depending on the market, but 75% we'll call it. That builds in your 25% profit margin. You then minus out repairs and say the repairs are $30,000. So now that 100 is down to 75 minus 35, uh, you're at 45,000. If you want to wholesale the property and make 10 grand, the most you could pay for that property is $35,000, right? So you can resell to somebody and still make a profit wholesaling mm-hmm. it. And wholesaling a bank-owned property, you got to buy it and resell it to the end buyer. You can't just assign it like I was talking about earlier because banks don't allow you to sign contracts. That was a long-winded answer. Sorry. No, it's good. That, that is in the weeds, and that, that's why I had you on, man. So that $15 a square foot that you came up with, the renovations, is that through experience? Is that a hard number? Where'd you come up with that number? So we did that. That's your basic rental, fixed to rent square footage number. Now with inflation and with all the cost of materials and everything going up, we bumped that up to $25 to $35 per square foot, depending on what market it's in. And sometimes you have to bump it up even more. Largely what we try to do is kind of get the agent to give us an idea of what they think it needs to repair. So if they say, we think it probably needs ballpark 30, we'll up it to like 35 or 40. Just give us a little bit of a cushion in there and go off that, use their data too. Because generally they've been at the property and mm-hmm. have firsthand knowledge of it where we don't. So they're going to give it a little bit better assessment that we're going to get of it. That's okay. kind of how you have your ground. Yeah. So two things, what everyone's seeing these days, one, like the cost of materials is crazy and everything's on back order and interest rates have kind of popped over the last couple of months. Oh yeah. Yeah. So how's that affect what you do when the interest rates go up and like the 2 by 4s and the materials and the, and the cabinets are on back order and you can't get windows for 9 weeks? Like how does that affect what you do? It affects it big time. So we've done a couple of things over the past year to year and a half we'll call it to modify that. So let's say Home Depot and Lowe's have a stock window that's a couple of inches smaller than the current window in there but we can get it and just pull it off the shelf and do it right away rather than wait eight weeks, 10, 12 weeks for a new window to come in. What we'll end up doing is just pack it out a little bit, put the smaller window in and just cap it and do a little finished trim work. Yeah, a little more cost up front, but less time, right? So that saves you money with the time. Let's get the property on the market a little bit quicker. As far as kitchen cabinets, we'll try to rebuild. If we can, we try to, if the cabinets are okay, We'll try to repaint them if they need a new touch-up and need paint. And then we'll put new countertops on, new appliances to make it pop. Or if not, what we'll do is we'll try to find out what's in stock at Home Depot or Lowe's of a shaker, like a shaker-style kitchen cabinet, the basic white or the gray. And we'll build it out to fit that so we don't have this long time waiting for a kitchen order to come in. For a little while, there was an appliance issue where the appliances were taking many months to get. So at that point, we were like, all right, we'll just give you an allowance of three, four, five thousand dollars for appliances when we're reselling it to them. And that way they can order what they want, get it when mm. get it whenever they end up getting it, right? We can't control that. That's one way around it if you're going conventional. FHA, unfortunately, I think requires you to have certain appliances, but conventional mortgages, you can get away with doing that. And a lot of people are just going conventional over the past few years. M- much yeah. easier. 
Oh, thanks for sharing that. It looks like the principles remain the same when the variables are different. I forget who said this, but it, it, like there's a philosopher basically said, life is a series of constant adjustments. So like, the principles yeah. remain the same, but you just got to get creative where, you, where maybe you use different windows. You give people like a little allowance to buy their own appliances when they come in. Like You just kind of work with the system yeah. and you have to be pragmatic about it. Totally do. And then you constantly have to adjust and you constantly have to look at your business. And now we're at the point where because things are so chaotic and crazy in this world, I'm looking at my business from month to month. I'm looking at all the data come in because this first year we've ever had in our history, rates were 2.75 for mortgage rates in January. And then they shot up and were close to six or around 6% for a little while. They've gone back down to 5.3, luckily. But that's the first time in history of this country that rates have doubled in the same calendar year. And they not only did it the same calendar year, they did it in the same quarter. That's never happened. So that was crazy. And that was uh, Ukraine, Russia, whole, that whole war probably threw a little bit of, uh, of into monkey wrench into that to cause that and caused it. It's all 10-year T-bond as far as the long-term rates. That's what that's built off of. So that got totally messed up. Now it seems to have balanced, but what happened was when I saw that big jump up, I start pulling back because the more expensive properties get really costly. Like you're talking about adding five to $700 a month in a monthly payment when you're talking about doubling your interest rate payments. So we just scaled back. We're looking at everything 350,000 and under. We only have one property in Florida that we're picking up that's around 650 and that one still makes me slightly uneasy. The only thing I'm a little bit more comfortable with in that one, that particular complex that this condo is in, people buy mostly cash. So there's people with money there. So I feel a little bit better about that, but I still feel nervous. Just I, I like the shift and go 250 and under as much as possible. But with in this day, 250 a couple of years ago is now 350, right? With the $350,000 house because the median price has jumped up so much. But getting back to how often you have to look at your business, I used to do quarterly lookbacks and then I would get to end of Q2 and I would do a hard look back on a business. What I would do is see, all right, what markets do we do well in? What markets do we struggle in? What price points were working? What price points weren't? And what, what is different markets? Like, should we focus on a different market? Should we get out of this market? So we'll actually look and shift based off the data. I, that's why I like to do a hard look, but now I'm doing it every month. I pull up Altos's data, Redfin's data every month to find out which markets are increasing the most, which ones are decreasing the most, where are the inventory levels in each state and maybe even certain cities. If I'm focusing on say Dallas, Texas or San Antonio, Texas, what are the inventory properties on the market currently look like now? And are they increasing? Are they increasing a lot? So that's a data you really got to look at and stay on top of it if you want to stay in business, that's for sure. It's just a series of constant adjustments. You're basically you're looking at the data more frequently because things are changing so fast. Like the mortgage rates doubled like in the same quarter, which is unheard of, right? They went down forever. Now they're doubling. And then, then you have everything from supply chain issues to whatever. So you just have to constantly look at the data and don't make assumptions of what it was like four months ago and think that those barometers are going to be the same next month as they were 90 days ago. So you have to look every month, you have to keep adjusting what you're doing and how you're doing it because the world's coming at you even faster than ever. Oh, that is for sure. And that's almost an understatement because you have to get so much into, you look at your macro trends, your macroeconomic trends are great, but I'd like to get into the micro too. To give you an example, like the the southern areas right now, the Sun Belts, they call them, like which would be Florida, Arizona, Texas, Tennessee, even to an extent, Southern Tennessee, the Carolinas, and Georgia, those areas are still showing very good growth. And I expect that to continue. One of the reasons I expect it to continue is the largest generation is the baby boomer generation. The baby boomer generation, I think I've written down here, reaches 55 to 73 right now. And there's 72.1 million baby boomers. So that's still a lot of people that are going to be retiring over the next 5, 10, 15 years, maybe slightly longer than that. And where do people retire to? They retire to the Sun Belt. So where are the areas where I think there's still going to be growth going in? To me, it's still going to be in the Sun Belt area. You're going to lose people in the Northeast. You're going to lose them in the Northern areas. You're going to lose them in maybe in the coast as California continues to get more and more expensive and pricey and hard to live in as New Jersey does, as New York does. 
some of these states that are so expensive, they're going to price themselves out and people are going to shift to these less expensive states like South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Texas, Nevada, where people have gone and Tennessee. These are the markets that are booming mm-hmm. and other markets have shifted. You know, since last year, Joe, since I moved to Naples, Florida, I follow Redfin, right? Redfin gives great data. Actually, you just type in your address if you want. And what it'll do is it'll give you updates on your property from month to month, what your price point is, how much you gained or lost. So from the time we sold our property last year, it has gone up 11% in the past year. Do you want to take a guess of what my property in Naples went up in the past calendar year? It was 41%. Was 41% in that same calendar year. So it ended up being good. But now it doesn't matter because it's unrealized gains. I'm not going to sell the house, right? I'm going to keep it. I got a 3% mortgage on the property. So to me, that's like one of my greatest assets mm-hmm. that I have is super inexpensive money. I can't get a 3% mortgage right now. So yeah, sure, sure. that property is for me for forever because I could always rent it if we decided to move somewhere else. But yeah. being in the right markets, and I think Florida and the Sun Belt are continue to grow, whereas other markets will slow down more and you'll have less buying activity and more inventory in those other markets, even though Florida is a, and Arizona are both cyclical markets, meaning they go up and they go down, right? Mm. Much more extreme than a, than a market like Philadelphia. We didn't get hit nearly as bad by the financial crisis as Florida or Nevada, Phoenix, or Southern California did because mm. they're so seasonal, right? And like the first thing you think of when the economy goes bad and jobs are shedding, Las Vegas loses everything right away, right? They're the first market hit because that is literally just entertainment. That's where companies cut all their trips to Vegas. And then they cut their trips going to Scottsdale, Arizona for golfing too. So Arizona gets hit. Florida gets hit because it just gets too pricey. People don't have money. They're not buying as much there. And Southern California gets hammered really, really well or hard, I should say. So you're good markets to be in. If you're thinking, if, if you're an investor who just wants good cash flow and wants to be in markets that are more linear, meaning more steady. You're not going to have any big ups and big downs, but you're going to have generally pretty good tenants because they can afford to pay the payment that's that that the normal payment of job steady is good market growth. Be your Indiana's, your Ohio's, Michigan, and a Carolina's and Tennessee. These markets are tremendous markets for that. They don't have the big volatility up and down. And so you're not going to have big gains on these properties. But if you're buying rentals, you're not concerned about increase. You do want the property to gain value, right? But what you really look for is cash flow and good tenants and not have to worry about changing out tenants constantly, which you're going to have more turnout of tenants usually in those cyclical markets. One of my questions I was going to ask you, but you just answered is where are the good values now? I love Tennessee. Tennessee is great. I'm, and I'm building out my rental portfolio in Wyoming. I love Wyoming because the taxes are so cheap. There's zero income tax state, but the real estate taxes are so cheap. So because of that, I like that area. It's growing area, even though it is still, what, 58% federally owned parks and game land. So you have a limit on what the population could be. And it is hard to get in and out of, meaning there's no direct flights. The direct flights are super expensive to get there. So you have to go to like Denver, Salt Lake City and take a hopper from there. But the markets are great. They're cheap, inexpensive, good place to raise a family. So I'm hitting that market. I'm hitting Tennessee. I've sold all my rentals in Pennsylvania, and now they're all going to be shifted to Wyoming, Tennessee, Texas, and Florida, and maybe occasionally some in South Carolina, Georgia area. And is that what it is? You're buying and renting them out? Okay. Buying and renting them out. Yep. So they call it the Burr method, buy, renovate, and refinance. Okay. Buy, renovate, refinance. Yeah. Gotcha. And in those markets, would they be the same that you would do in the online auctions? You're buying and flipping, you're signing. Is it, would they be the same markets that you'd be working in? Absolutely. Yeah. So we do, like we focus, you know, even though we bought 44 or 50 states, our favorite markets personally for us are the Carolinas, Florida, Texas, Tennessee. It's become Wyoming and really just because I focused on a little bit more and Ohio and Indiana and Michigan to an extent too. And it shifts from year to year. New Mexico, like I hadn't done a deal in New Mexico until a year ago. And then all of a sudden I've done like 10 deals in the past year and a half in New Mexico. That's also become a nice place to be. So how does a market, say New Mexico, all of a sudden pop up on your radar screen? What grabs your attention that you're like, well, I got to go there? So for me, it's always price point, right? It's always about the deal. If I see a property there that has a nice spread, so it's worth 125, but I could pick it up for 50 and it only needs $15,000 of work and I could turn around and, and sell somebody for that 125 or 150. I'm looking for that 
So I'm not necessarily hitting intentionally going after certain markets per se. I'll look at any markets. I'm really looking for the deal first and foremost. But when you've had success in certain markets and you have good agents, good reliable people to rely on for as far as contractors, you tend to want to focus a little bit more on those markets just because you have experience there to create a new team in a different market. But at the same time, I have no fear to go into a new market. If the deal's a deal, I'm going to make it work one way or another. I know a lot of people that have bought a house and flipped it and made money. I know people that have bought houses and lost their rear end, right? And they just didn't know what they're doing. They just bought too high and and there was a lot of repairs and they just couldn't get out of it and they had bad rentals and they couldn't get paid. And it just wasn't a very good deal. So fast forward, what are some of the common mistakes you see people that buy real estate? Say a newbie, say someone's just getting started. What are some of the common mistakes you see them do? Two things, they'll, they'll either FOMO in it, I mean, fear of missing out, and they're trying to jump in a market and they overpay for it. They overpay it, or they didn't do enough due diligence on the property, they buy it, and then you find out it has additional, like maybe it has foundation issues that you got to repair, which are much more costly. That's how people generally get hit on that. Then you have you know, a lot of times, and I've dealt with this, I've dealt with it on both, right? I've bought properties, didn't know they had foundation issues. When we started renovating, we found out there were foundation issues. We had to fix them, turn around, I'd sell properties for loss. It was last year, I think I sold one at around a $40,000 loss because it had foundation issues. We had no idea until we took the walls apart. And we we're like, oh my God, I can't just sell this to another person this way. It's This is a disaster. Something bad's going to happen. So we got to renovate it. And then sometimes you just sell it at a loss, it happens. Or if you want to, you can decide to keep it as a rental if it's in the market you want. And then just let time heal your wounds, right? And let time pay you back. Um, Depending on where it is, I'll do that. But you're going to have it happen. But newbies, a lot of times, they won't have the right contractors. They'll get a contractor in there. The contractor go bad. Then they got to hire another one. And their rehab budget was 30000 Suddenly, the next thing is fifty-five. And their profit margin, their profits went from maybe a $25,000 to a negative five, right? And then they get soured and turned off to real estate. If this happens in a first deal with our students, things, they usually don't want to do it again. And then we have to talk about flesh. Hey, this is an aberration. It doesn't normally happen like this. We'll help you in the next one a little bit more <laughs> and then try to give them a little bit of a helping hand. Usually we do that in our first deals. We're like hand in hand with them. So they make sure there's no weird things that they run into anything out of the ordinary. We had one recently in a property in Florida and it was in a rural area and the agent was not given the greatest comps. We thought it was worth 345, maybe 375 tops. And the agent kept saying 425 for you know 50 for this thing after repair. When the lender came in to look at it, they pulled comps. They were seeing the same thing. We were around 340. And so I'm like, look, I, this thing never felt great for me from jump, just back out of it. This was not an auction property. This was a regular MLS deal. And the agent lived in that neighborhood. So I think he had a little vested interest to try to push that property and help his values. Sometimes you got to be careful with that. We were there holding his hand and he got out of the deal and he should be fine. He could have still potentially made money on it. Just something just, I did, it didn't hit me right. I, you know, that gut feeling that you get yeah. sometimes like it doesn't feel right in a gut. I tell people just walk from it. It's not worth it. So many things in life, like your gut so many times is more right than not where things just feel wrong. It's better than your brain. People are realizing that your vagus nervous system, I mean, it's actually got intelligence in there and it tells your, it's your fight or flight mechanism, right? When things go bad and it's getting you out of a bad situation. So your gut reaction to stuff is your most, it's most important thing to me. Then or sometimes our monkey minds will change things up and turn something good out of something bad, vice versa, make something bad that's good. Yep. So that'll mess up. Always trust your gut first. When you when I didn't trust my gut is when things went wrong. And if you trust your gut and it still goes wrong, like I can sleep better at night with that. Like if it felt wrong and no. I got out, but it turned out to be great, like I'm fine. But if my gut tells me something is wrong and I still go with it and it's a disaster, it's a double hit on me. Like I didn't follow my principles, I didn't follow who I was. And I'm double mad at myself. Does that make sense? That it went wrong and yes. I didn't follow my gut. Just to summarize how new real estate investors get in trouble, fear of missing out. Maybe all their friends are buying sure houses and they want to buy a sure house. So they're all buying Pocono houses and we just got to get yeah. in there. And we want to be in that neighborhood and they buy way too high. All right. They overpay. Second is they just don't do enough due diligence. They don't understand what are the repairs they needed or that doesn't need a roof or something wrong with the foundation. Is there a septic tank, an oil tank in the backyard you got to dig out? They don't do the due diligence. 
And then bad contractors, they hire a contractor, maybe they take their money and run, or they take their money, do crappy work and leave in the middle and you can't find them anymore. So contractors too, right? Big time. And then the the last thing to add on to that is you want to have multiple exit strategies, right? So you want to look at a property and say, okay, if the fix and flip thing doesn't work here, can I turn around and refinance this thing and rent it out and cash flow it? Meaning if my monthly mortgage payment tax insurance are $1,500 a month, could I rent it for $1,800 a month? So I got some building cushion. I'm generally look for $300 of positive cash flow per month from a property. Um, so that's another mobile exit strategy. What ways can you get out? You want to have more than one. You usually want to have two, if not three, because a lot of times you can sell a property with owner financing where you can wrap a deal, not to get too complex, but let's say you get the property, you, you refinance it, you're having trouble selling it what you want to, or you have some people who really would like to buy it, they would pay more, but they don't necessarily qualify for a conventional mortgage. Then you sell to them for more money, your monthly payments, 1500 You sell to them with a the mortgage payment, everything for say 1800 or so, maybe a little bit more. You collect it, you pay your mortgage, and, and you're, it's a wrap mortgage. One mortgage is wrapped around the other. That's a third exit strategy you could have. So you want to have a lot of tools in your tool belt. Yeah. So a lot of people go in with one game plan. If it doesn't go well, they blow it all up, and then they're done with it. Gotcha. So when you understand the process, you increase your options. and you have more options, you have a better chance of having a good outcome of the deal. And then let's go back. You mentioned your online academy. So not only did you start this and say, not only can I do this and make money, I can do this as a career path. Then you, as you did this for years, now you're actually teaching others how to do this. How did that start? So it started, this is oddly enough, I was speaking at a flip hacking event out in San Diego about, it was 2017. And a buddy of mine who runs this thing, he's like, we come speak about what you do. So I did, spoke about it. And I had a bunch of people come up to me. They were so interested in my model. Would you teach me how to do this? So out of that, I developed an educational system. Took many years to really kind of perfect. And we're still constantly changing it and adding more and more and more to this model, which is great. But you know, originally I just brought somebody in, held their hand, and then they went on their own. They had success or they decided to sometimes people just go and they disappear. Every once in a while, it's like, oh, something happened, like changing a job. I can't do this. Can I get my money back? Yep, here's your money back. Move on, be happy, and and go from there. So it's developed and changed. And this year, we've even had more changes to it. We got a nice platform through the Mighty Networks, which allows us to have all the educational videos put up there. So we have probably 70-some videos up on this thing that teach you how to do all kinds of different things from each auction platform to comping to figuring out rentals and insurance, all this different stuff. And then we bring on people from auction.com, from HubZoo, from Zone. And we got people, our students onto the VIP buyers program at certain ones like HubZoo and Zone and Hudson and Marshall. And so now we've just been able to give them so many different things, national title company to work with, a national home insurance company so it makes everything more simplified and easier and easier stuff. I wish I had many, many, many years ago, but it just keeps getting better and better and better. As I was telling you before, the technology and everything just keeps getting better and better. Mm-hmm. The thing that slows us down, Joe, the biggest thing that always slows us down is the same thing all the government. So you can only go as fast as the government does. And sometimes they take forever to record the deed or the mortgage or when you're going for permits. So these certain townships take forever that it always slow down the processes. We could be so fast as entrepreneurs, the technology makes things so much quicker and better. That's been one of our biggest hurdles. We'll never overcome that because government's always going to be what it is. It's a hurdle. It's an obstacle that you got to figure out and work around and work within the system, unfortunately, but everything else gets quicker and better with technology. So real estate as say jujitsu or whatever business you're in, you have to utilize the principles, the systems, the processes, simplify it as much as possible, have a standard procedure, and then be able to have a standard little bit yeah, and pragmatic approach. We're knowing that and you get to a point where you can give yourself a couple options where you can either rent it out or you could sell it or you could hold it. Understand the system enough and the process enough that you potentially have different options. This you could have different outcomes, that pragmatic approach with the systems and processes. What's the hit rate? Say you bought 10 properties out of the 10, mm-hmm. say baseball, you're batting 300, you're in the Hall of Fame. If you bought 10 properties, how many make money and how many you're like, you know what, that one just didn't work out? What would you say? 
Generally, what we're doing now, I've done as many as around 134, 135 properties in a year, but the sweet spot I'm at now is between 60 and 80 properties per year, personally, that I'm doing, okay. not including student stuff. With that, I would generally have anywhere from two to at most four per year where I'll have a loss or a slight loss or occasionally that $40,000 loss that you have on when a foundation issue on. Most of our losses, honestly, are in the $500 to $5,000 range. So they're very, very minimal losses. And we have ways to kind of protect that and make sure that that does happen too. So you were talking about the systems and processes. When we're looking at these properties, we have several different spreadsheets we use. One of them is our wholesale spreadsheet. We're looking at the deal. Can we wholesale this property and make $10,000 net on this property? And then what's next one is our whole tail. Whole tail means you're not doing a full scale renovation. Let's say you're, you're doing paint carpet, maybe putting new appliances in, minor stuff, right? You don't have to change systems. You don't have to change kitchens or bathrooms. That you just clean it up, make it look nice, landscaping it, spending maybe 10, 20 grand instead of 50, 60, 70 grand on a full scale rehab, and then see what your profit is. And then go to the full-scale rehab. So you're looking at three different things, potentially four if you want to look at it as rental too, because we can look at it four different ways. But if it, let's just say rental's off that we don't want to do a rental here. We'll look at all three of those. So this is what we do almost every single time on our coach call. Here's the deal. All right, we can make 12000 wholesaling it. We can make about 28000 wholetailing it. And we can make, let's call it 40000 doing a full-scale fix and flip. So I'm looking at if I can make 12,000 and turn it really quick, I will do that all day long because there's way less risk, especially in this market where we're shifting in a market. I'll take that 12,000 now rather than wait for the 28 or for the 40,000 on a full scale fix. Mm -hmm. The the less you do, less is more. Yeah. It's my my motto. Keep it simple, stupid theory, right? Less is more. So take that 12, move on, find the next deal. Now, if you're constricted, if you're new and you don't have many deals, you might want to maximize what you get out of each deals. Then it's not a problem to go ahead and do that and decide that we're going to wholetail this one or we're going to fix and flip this one. But when you're trying to do more deals and be more transactional, which is what we try to do, we like doing more wholesaling. Our model has always been 80% wholesaling, about 10 to 15% fix and flip, and then the 5 to 10% buy and hold. Whereas we flipped that model on its head the last few years, we were about 20% wholesale and mostly fix and flip and occasional buy and holds. Fix and flip meaning we could be doing wholesale small renovations. Those are the ones we target compared to your full scale fix and flip. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what you want to do. My model is I'll t- if I can make 10 or more up net, I'm doing that all day long. Unless I can make a hundred some thousand fixing and flipping it, then I might consider the fix and flip. Take the numbers you just gave me, say 60 to 80 deals per year that you're doing, two to four go bad. Just take the lowest number of deals of 60 and just say four, the max go bad, right? That's fifth, yeah. that's one over five. That's six, say seven percent roundup. So you're basically that's at like right. a 93% hit rate on what your system yeah. has right now. Yeah, we don't want to buy anything that could be risky, you know, and we've gotten better at that over time too. We've had several yeah. years where we had zero that didn't make profit several years where we didn't that was accelerating market helps that right mm-hmm. we're in a rare hyper hyper market where things grow and so you have less risk with that and wow. in a downturning market those risks go up exp- exponentially right if the market starts leveling off or dropping yeah then you have a, a lot more risk of things um, going bad for you and having more losses in a year right but we've been in a bull market since 2013 in real estate so that's a long, you're at nine years. This is the first nine-year bull market we've ever had in real estate. The stock market's been since 2009 in a bull market. Now, now it's turning bearish too. But yeah, so the rate is pretty good, but we've gotten better at that. We, we look at less of the properties need major, major stuff. Like as we're going through and looking at these properties, if I see it needs, it's got a, a ceiling that's collapsing and stuff all over and everything's out of whack and not level. I'm like, I don't want to touch that property. That's going to be too much work or too hard to sell to another investor. So you get better at looking at properties like, all right, this is a good one. That's not a good one. Part of our training videos, I'll go through and I'll go through an auction sample. I'm like, here's why this is a good one. Here's why this is not a good one. Mm-hmm. And so far, our students are like, they're like, that's the best video because I want to be in your brain, seeing what you're seeing there and learning from that. So mm-hmm. Because they said that, I'm going to create more and more videos like that so people understand 
that you know what's right to get into, why it's right, and what what is not a good deal, and why it's not a you know why what makes it not be a good deal. Thanks for sharing that. What I want to do is transition over to be respectful of your time. Cryptocurrencies, so hot, like oh, NFTs, yeah. cryptos. That's one thing I know. I just don't really have a great understanding about. Tell us about how you got into cryptos and just give like maybe the novice, the 30,000 foot airplane view, what they are and why they should care about cryptocurrencies. Awesome. Yeah. So it's technology, right? And technology always continues to advance and gets better and better. So when you're looking at cryptos, you're basically looking at something from the NASDAQ, right? The NASDAQ is all techs, all tech stocks, right? So as the NASDAQ got hammered this year, of course, so did cryptocurrencies because they're all tech. So I'm not a super, super techie guy, but I do love tech. <laughs> so Bitcoin, when, when the white paper came out in 2009, that caught my interest. This is really interesting concept, but I didn't fully understand it. And I didn't read, go too deep into the rabbit hole yet. Then in 2013, I was ready to start investing. And that's when Bitcoin was like a dollar or 20 cents. It was going up and down. It has these, it has these huge uh, increases and then big crashes, right? It's been the history of Bitcoin. Um, so in 2013, I originally wanted to buy it, but that happened to be the year I did like 134 deals. And I was at that point a solopreneur where it was me buying the properties, coordinating all the renovations for any which one we're renovating, and then me selling the properties. In 2014, I brought somebody on who's still with me to this day and helps run our educational company. And he became my salesperson selling all my properties, which literally took a big chunk of the business away from me, which was good allow me to concentrate a little bit more on other stuff. But 2013, I was just too in the rabbit hole of real estate, didn't have time to get into cryptos. And that was the biggest mistake I ever made. Let me tell you, if I would have bought a couple thousand on Bitcoin back then, even if it was a buck, I'd be sitting pretty right now. But I waited till 2017. And in 2017, it got to a thousand for the first time and then like 2000. And I started buying it. I think at like 1700, 1600 was the first time I bought it. And then at 2800, and I was buying it all the way up until about 12,000 that year in 2017. And then, of course, the tank dropped down and I have these great rides up and then big crashes down. The turning point for me when it went from, I doubled down, right? So I put, what I was doing was taking 500 to to $1,000 of every real estate deal that I did and putting it into Bitcoin or Litecoin or Ethereum or one of these other cryptos, mostly Bitcoin now. And I put $110,000 into it. And then, the COVID lockdown in 2020, Bitcoin crashed, all the markets crashed, the equities and everything. So Bitcoin went down to $4,840 and it became cheaper to buy Bitcoin than it did to mine Bitcoin. In other words, it cost the miners more money, more than $5,000 to mine a Bitcoin where I could just buy it. I'm like, you know what? It's on sale now. I got to buy. So I pulled so much to my wife's chagrin, I pulled $25,000 out of my life insurance policy and just bought five Bitcoin with it. And it was the best investment I made that year because I think Bitcoin went up to around 30000 at the end of 2020. And I've held it since and added more when it goes up and it goes down. So it has these weird cycles where it will go up to its all-time high and then crash off its all-time high, anywhere between 70 and 80% drop. So we're in that right now. So the high was 69,000 in November, I think 21st last year, 2021. And then it dropped to around 18 and change and now it's sitting around 2021. So it's about 72% below its all-time high at down to that 18,000. So that means it's a good time to start dollar cost averaging in. It could go down further. Looking at the charts and looking at the way things are going, there's a floor of 12,000, but you're most likely going to be able to pick it up between 14 and 17, call it. Because what happens is it'll hit that floor so quickly and it'll just shoot right back up and not just shoot back up in a day, but shoot back up in minutes, an hour. So if you have orders in on Coinbase or Binance or one of these other exchanges, it could crash right through your orders. Um, so that that's where you end up picking up for more, right? Then you're like, all right, now I got still going to get it. You're you're trying to buy it as it's as it's going up. So if it does that, it's going to hit that number and then bounce off that number pretty quickly and then go up and then hopefully have a nice steady increase up. We still have one more down leg, I think, Joe, in this one. But the crypto, the technology of it is so awesome. And there's ones that are great. Most are going to fall apart. So now 
what I've done is I've taken the time to research and pick my favorite cryptos based on largely based on their teams, the CEO of the company, what his philosophy is. Does he have a good plan? Does he have a great team that's working with him? Just like you're looking at any stock, right? You're looking at the CEO of the company, you're looking at what their future uh, projections are, how they're going to get there. Do they have a good team, a good core team? So you can look at cryptos even more uh, easier than you can with the stocks because the people are out there regularly on YouTube being interviewed. And you can pull up all the interviews from them, find out what their game plan is, what their team's like, how they're building and what they're doing. So it's pretty incredible that the whole crypto thing, the whole crypto space and what's coming and NFTs, we can touch on NFTs pretty soon, Joe. These iPhones will be an NFT. Really? So NFT, non-fungible yeah. token, right? NFT? Non-fungible tokens. Yeah. Everything will be on a blockchain. And the reason I'll be able to call them NFTs, a lot of people are selling houses now as NFTs. I haven't, I haven't ventured down that path yet, but I may do that in a short term. But everything's going to end up being an NFT. So this will be recorded on a blockchain, this phone. So it'll know it's mine. Right. Uh, so I'll have definite ownership and it'll show exactly who the owner is. I'm sure there'll be ways around the system, right? But you'll be able to sell it as an NFT. It just mm-hmm. it's just a whole new future, a whole new thing. Almost everything will be an NFT. A car is gonna end up being an NFT. You know, a lot of people's houses, as I said, will become NFTs. Wrapping up the, the crypto and NFT conversation, say someone is like, you know what, I just bought mutual funds my whole life. I'm interested in NFTs, I'm in- interested in cryptos. Where's a good place for the average person to start to say, listen, I'm at ground zero. I heard it on the news a couple of times. I don't even understand it, let alone I put money towards it. What would be a good place for people to start to get their base knowledge? So there's a lot of great resources now. What I did in 2017 originally, and even 2013 when I started looking at them, was going on YouTube and just typing in something about Bitcoin or something about Bitcoin Cash or, or Theta, one of my favorite projects out there. That's one way. Then you've got um, a whole bunch of different websites like coinmarketcap.com, coingecko.com, bitcoinnews.com, or news slash bitcoin.com. There's probably about six or seven really great resources. You can go out there and just read articles about each of these different companies. Even on Forbes, they're putting stuff now, and Bloomberg, they're putting stuff out on these. I take them with a grain of salt. They usually got a slant going in there. But the ones that you, you read on on like CoinGecko, they just put out some great information on, on these things. And CoinStats.com, you can go look at the top, you know, all the different top uh, companies out there. And what are some of the other ones out there? CoinDesk.com. Uh, um, you look at the, the fear and greed index of Bitcoin. That's a really important one to look at, too. So that right now, like the fear and greed index is really, really low. Low is bad, right? So like it been as low as 11, I think it's around 18, 19, the fear is starting to ease a little bit on Bitcoin. And then you get to the greed part. When it gets over 60, people are now greedy and it's probably not the great time to buy. So there's an old saying, be fearful when others are greedy, be greedy when others are fearful. So when everybody's scared of it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So whenever, whenever there's blood on the streets, that's when you want to buy. He says that all the time, Warren Buffett does buying opportunities. When your barber's talking about flipping properties, it's probably not a great time to be doing that unless you have a great game plan for what you're doing. Like, I'm going to still continue this no matter what the market is. I just shift my numbers, you know, big time as the market's shifting. So you got to have a game plan and uh, know when to be in what asset class and the shift. And you don't have to be perfect. You're not going to hit the bottom of the market. You're not going to hit the top of the market. You just want to be somewhere in there, somewhere in the middle and catch the swings up and down and hopefully gain off that volatility. I remember someone telling me if your brother-in-law told you about it at the family party or it's on the cover of Time Magazine, it's way too late. Move on. It's way too late. It's It's, it's way too late. So yeah, anyone in the barbecue giving you a a good tip or you see it on Time or Newsweek or CNN, it's way too late. So thank you for the education on the real estate, on crypto and NFTs. Just wrapping up here, a couple of fun questions so people can get to know you a little bit more as a person. With all you have going on with your buying real estate, your online academy, cryptos, NFTs, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? So I love platform tennis, paddle, right? That's a sport that's up here in the Northeast. It's pretty prevalent. My wife and I were big time in it. We got good at it. Love it. 
It's not as prevalent down there in Florida. However, one of the pros is actually building an indoor facility where we're going to be able to play it again down there, which is great. Then there's pickleball, of course, right, which is growing like you wouldn't believe. Fastest growing sport in the world. Play some tennis, go to the gym. We lift. My boys have all gotten big time in the lift. And I don't do it as much as I used to, partly because of time, but I do it as much as I can. Exercise. I know, Joe, you're into martial arts, right, which is such a great resource, too, like just to get rid of negative energy and just relax and get into the right frame of mind. Yeah. Uh, meditation, I think, is key. Meditation is huge, right? Because you want to quiet your mind as things get crazy in this world and things get loud. Meditate as much as possible. And then maybe if you have a good book you like want to read. I'm not a nonfiction reader. I only read stuff like Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which just gives great information. Mm-hmm. That's a book I would recommend anybody, especially anybody who wants to learn about real estate, what an asset is, what mm-hmm. an asset is. And a lot of people think their house is an asset, but it is yeah. not as liability, right? It provides you no income, right? So it is a liability. It's what's real, tangible asset, what it isn't great book for it. There's a million other great books that are out there for motivation and stuff. But what I found is sometimes you get so much into reading these books and you're into the next book, you're not implementing. So I've really cut back on on reading books. I'll target one type of book and then just implement this because otherwise it's just shiny objects. Right. Where everything comes along, I'm just trying to get that. Going back to the books like this year, there was just almost too much to work on. I'm like you where a lot of nonfiction biographies or like business books. And there's so many ideas that like, they don't like you look at them and it's great shiny object and you do it a little bit, but then you read the next book and you're doing the next thing and it's, you're getting up early. Then you're doing, you're changing your workout then you're changing your diet, all these books. I'm like, you know what? I just went back to like the, my 10 favorite books and I'm just reading Perfect. my notes. I took in those books the highlights. Maybe there's a great book I read on Churchill and I highlighted maybe 10% of the book. I just go back and read the highlights and like the principles he lived his life on or how he led. I go back to the books that really moved me and really like, wow, I got to be more like this. And I'm just rereading books or rereading the notes I took in those books. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. It's a great thing to do. As a matter of fact, I have a notepad in my bag here that I have notes from different mastermind groups that I've been in. And I was just going through it the other day and pulling stuff out. Oh, this is something I got to utilize and do. So I was just yeah. going through that again. That's why I keep that stuff. Same reason you do. So you review it later because that stuff becomes pertinent for you down yeah. the road. But yeah, always just increase your knowledge, increase your understanding. That's why I watch videos, learn more if you're interested in cryptos. Learn as much as you can about this thing, whatever you're interested in. What advice would you have for that first time buyer that maybe say, you know what? I want to buy my first sure house and rent it out. I want to buy a mountain house. I just want to buy a rental property in the city somewhere and just have another source of income. What what advice would you have for that person? This is perfect. All right. For anybody just getting started, you want to have all your ducks in a row. You want everything to line up. Don't just buy the house without a plan. You want to have a plan. You want to have an understanding of what that's going to be able to rent for, right? So you need to have certain key people that you're going to rely on for stuff. So let's say you want a sure house down in Ocean City and it's you're going to look for a three bedroom, two bathroom short. So you need to know what that rents out for during the summer, what it rents out for during the off season. Can you run there? Are there any restrictions on running if you happen to be in an HOA or anything? So you need to have all your ducks in a row and understand what you're getting into before just diving into it. So you can have a game plan set up and then you can reverse engineer it. So now you can look at it and say, this mortgage I'm getting at a 5% over 30 years. My monthly payment is $3,000, but I can rent this thing out for $38.50 a month. Then I'm doing that right now. I know it's a deal. I'm safe. I'm good here. I'm covered. I'm going to have somebody else pay my mortgage down and I'm going to have an asset with all said and done. And if you have a sure house, then you might just block out. If you're doing Airbnb, you might block out a couple of weeks that you want to utilize it, do it and block them out early and then run it out and you have your free sure house. What you're saying, know what you have before you're going in. How's your ducks in a yeah, row? Have a plan. You have a plan. Just have a plan. Know what it's going to rent for. Know what the HOA says. Know what your mortgage rate is. Know what, what it would rent for in July and January, Christmas week, end of the summer. Have all that in a row and don't do anything without a plan. Yep. Write out everything. Get out one of those little yellow pads and just write out any question you have in there too. Write it down. What happens if this? What happens if that? Make sure you have contractors that are ready and able to go do repairs quickly. Yeah. So you need to have a lot of things in a row, or maybe you have it professionally managed by a company out there that handles everything for you. Now you have to factor in a 10% to pay the property manager, right? Yeah. And the cleanings and all that kind of stuff. See, so you want to have all your ducks in a row. 
Just make sure you're covered and get, and you know what you're getting into. Eyes wide open and have a plan. Makes sense. Yeah. Last two questions. If you could spend a day with any historical figure alive or dead, who would it be? Okay. The easy one everybody would say would be like Jesus, right? I wouldn't want to hang with Jesus, right? But I'll give you a, more, a different one. It's not everybody's going to answer. Thomas Jefferson. I love Thomas Jefferson. He's my favorite founding father by a lot, maybe because like I'm a classic libertarian. He was a hardcore libertarian. He understood you want small government, hands off, less interference. Small government is the best government there is. So I would love to hang with Thomas Jefferson and pick his brain. Wow. Down Monticello. That'd be great. Last, would be. No, last question, Paul, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Never give up. Never give up would probably be it. Just keep going. Keep fighting. Never give up. It's simple. I think if I were to get a tattoo, it'd probably be a Bitcoin. Okay. <laughs> so Bitcoin, but next to it say, keep going, never give up. That's right. Never give up. Like yeah. it's life is hard. Life is yeah. hard and don't give up. Most people give up right before they're about to succeed. Most people yep. do give up. Don't give up. Keep fighting. Like I know it's hard and you run into this wall and just break through that wall. Yeah. Anybody who's had major success, he sees the, the books that they've written and talked about. They were thinking about giving up and they didn't. They're so glad they didn't. Right. Yep. Me personally, I could look at some of my worst nights or days and literally it's almost like the stock market where it just crashes one day and you're like, oh my God, this is awful. And then the next day it shoots up where it's not perfect, but it's so much better than it yes. was. It's almost like in golf. I don't play golf anymore, but I remember I have five bad holes. I'm, like, I'm going to throw my clubs into the lake, but the last drive, the 18th hole, you hung in there to the 18th hole and it's right down the fairway. And you're like, all right, I can keep going. I got this. Paul Lazell, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story, educating us on real estate, Bitcoin, NFTs. If people are looking for you and what you do online, where can they find you? They can go to YouTube and look up The Virtual Investor. They can also follow my podcast, The Flipping Out Podcast by Paul Lazell, obviously. And then if they want to learn a little bit more about our educational product, we do one that's it's basically it's a home study that you can do. For four ninety seven, and we have the full scale one, which is fifty five hundred. You get that at reoauctionacademy.com. That's reoauctionacademy.com. So, virtual investor, your website, your podcast, flipping out, or mm -hmm. your reoauctionacademy.com, where I will put all of these in the show notes. So, if anyone's looking for you or looking to learn more about what you do and how you do it, they can find it all the links in the show notes. Paul, awesome to see you, I man. I appreciate it, brother. Awesome seeing you, too. Keep going, man. Thanks for sharing your story. You're one of a kind, dude. I appreciate you. Thanks, man. Likewise, right back at you, Joe. Love you. Miss you. We'll catch you definitely soon. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.